in a section where Jesus is doing things that are humanly impossible and really amazing to see him doing, like uh, stilling the storm on the sea and like casting out the demons from the man that nobody could subdue, not even with shackles and chains, and like healing this woman that no doctor had been able to cure from her bleeding. And in the course of all of that, we had looked in 21 to 24, Jesus was on his way to uh, a synagogue official's house named Jairus, for the benefit of his daughter who was dying when this woman with the hemorrhage touched him and they had that incident. And so now we come back to the story of Jesus is still on his way to this synagogue official's house to heal his dying daughter. That's kind of where we pick up the story uh, in 535. Do you have any comments or questions before we get into that? So, would somebody read 35 to the end of the chapter? While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue official, saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions, and entered the room where the child was. Taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was twelve years old, and immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and he, and he said that something should be given her to eat. So, what's happened to this daughter? Well, in that case, what's the logical thing to do with Jesus, who's en route to the house? Thanks for trying. Yeah. You know, thanks, but, you know, it's too late. You know, what do you do when somebody dies? I mean, have you, can you imagine the scene in a hospital where somebody is dead they've been pronounced dead, we're waiting for the funeral director to come and take the body away, and suddenly some doctor rushes in with IVs and starts ordering the nurses to do this, do that, we're going to try this, we're going to administer that. Would there be any problem with that? You know, when somebody's dead, what good is it going to do to put an IV in? What good is it going to do to do various procedures they're dead, then it's over. You know? Now, I understand that sometimes people may, you know, uh, faint, or, you know, they might, we might suspect they are dead, but they haven't stiffened up yet. We're going to try artificial, you know, respiration and, you know, some things like that, some chest compressions and see if we can bring them out of that. But I'm saying, you know, this is funeral procession time here with this girl. She's dead. And so, you know, there's nothing else to be done. You know, you don't call the doctor in, you know, to the funeral home to see what he can do. So, that's where this is at. And so, logically, they say, you know, um, you, can, you can go on, you know, do, do whatever you need to do. Um, but what does Jesus say? And he continued on. He says, trust me, basically. I can handle this. And he goes into the house, taking just Peter, James, and John. And what's already going on in the house? Morning. Great morning weeping, their funeral type of thing. Remember that 
in an unusual culture where we wait days before we mourn the death. You know, that is not true in Brazil, and Brazil is much more like this. In Brazil, if you die at 6 o'clock in the morning, the funeral will be that evening. If you die at, you know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the funeral will be the next morning or around noon or something like that. Almost never more than 24 hours. Almost never more than 24 hours. It just isn't done that way. But if you die at 6 o'clock in the morning, your funeral will be that day. You know, that's the way they do that. They think, I will tell them, you know, there are times in the U.S. where it may be three days, maybe four days. They look at me like, what in the world do you guys think? That's just unheard of there. So, this is a funeral that's happening, you know, very soon after the death, as it would. And probably, from some things we know, um, it was probably involved, something that we think of as very odd, the hiring of professional mourners. They actually had people who went around and hired out to bewail the deceased. I don't know why, but I can think of a good reason why. People who are skilled at weeping and wailing may be able to help the family express their grief better. Because I don't know if that's what they thought, but I see that as a practical value. Because sometimes you see people who bottle up their emotions at a time like that. They can't really cry. They can't really express their grief. And that's worse. It's better if you can cry. Crying is really helpful. If you haven't tried it in a while, try it. You know, it's good for you. And it, it's kind of a, an emotional release. So that may be the purpose. Maybe they had something else in mind. But that's probably what's going on here because when Jesus says, announces rather uh, uh, amazingly, the child has not died but is asleep, what do they do? Laugh, which probably isn't the family's emotion. It's probably the professional mourner's emotions. And he puts all of them out. He takes, takes the father and the mother, the three companions of his, and he goes into her, and what does he do? Hey, little girl, get up. Yeah, and what does she do? Isn't he amazing? Just so amazing. And they're just dumbfounded. This is amazing. This is incredible. I mean, you just can't imagine what kind of emotions they must have been going through at this point. This is just, wow. And uh, Jesus didn't really want this spread. He was not doing this to try to attract attention. And then Jesus did something that is really impressive to me in the end of verse 43. Impressive just imagining the scene. What did Jesus do? Commanded to give her something to eat. Yes. Why wouldn't they have thought of that? They're too busy worrying about how great a miracle it is. Yes. I think in the excitement and the amazement of the moment, probably didn't dawn on him. The poor girl's hungry. You know, and they're just all, you know so so overwhelmed with joy they didn't think about feeding her the thing that impresses me you've heard some of you heard me say this before but something that i observe in jesus miracles that you see especially in something like that is that jesus never amazed himself with what he did jesus never does a miracle like this and then says oh would you look at that can't believe it really worked he doesn't get all excited so Jesus maintains calmness. And you see him in these events, you know, just calmly saying, listen, could you get her something to eat? You know, Jesus is in control. He's, he's very uh, matter-of-fact about this. Uh, that, that tells you something about Jesus. It tells you that he really had this ability. He's not surprised. They may be, but he isn't. So he's very much composed and in control of the situation. Comments and questions? It reminds me also of uh, after his resurrection, he's in the upper room and, you know, they're looking at him like, you're a ghost, and he says, do you got any fish? Let me eat the fish. So, even though I'm sure they were um, properly convinced that she was alive because she was up and walking around, her eating something would also be would also Good help point. him confirm again. Ghosts don't eat. I don't think. <laughs> Logan, um, why is it whenever there's only a few disciples to go, Jesus is always Peter, James, and John? Good question. Were there other times it was only Peter, James, and John? 
uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. Were there other times? Transfiguration. So why Peter, James, and John? They were going to be the leaders later on, maybe? James, not for long, but... Um, I think they were his special buddies. You know, they were the ones closest to him, and on special occasions he just took them. Maybe they had more passion for him than the others did, too. Maybe. I mean, of the three, is there one that was closer to Jesus? John. John. Seems to be the one he loved. Is Jesus, I mean, I don't know. Is Jesus not like us in that? I mean, would there ever be a time that you might want just two or three people with you? And you might have certain people that that would be. Be other times that there might be a dozen or so that you'd want. Might be times there'd just be one that you would be especially close to. I think that's natural. Why does he tell them not to tell anyone? I assume it's for the same reasons that he told the leper not to tell back in Mark 1 that he's not wanting to be thronged by too many thrill-seekers. That's what I, my guess is. I don't know. Well, it's not that they're not going to know. It's that he doesn't want them to, you know, noise this about and get more publicity than it already will get. So he doesn't want to, like, make, make himself seem higher than... Yeah, and I think he doesn't want to be thronged by a bunch of curiosity-seekers. That's what I think. Contradictory. Why does he do it if he doesn't want to tell? He wants them to know it. Right? Yeah. It's also to show his disciples, his apostles. And us. Right. Yeah. Also, it probably it probably be more convincing for them to believe they saw firsthand than by second or third hand tell because because rumors get started all the time when we actually see it you're going to believe yeah those are good questions I don't know that I have great answers to them um, maybe he's setting an example because we read the Bible and we're learning from him and if he said now go tell everybody then we might go tell everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a good point. I mean, you know, if Jesus is humble and not doing this for attention, then that might be a good reason for him to say that. He is a good example to us in that. You know, we if we were able to do something like that, we would make sure that it got told. <laughs> you know, would you please put this on the front page of the paper tomorrow, you know? in these events and people have come to have greater faith in him but that's not true with everybody uh, chapter 6 verses 1 to 6 Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him when the Sabbath came he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Okay, so where did Jesus go here? Yeah, where would that have been? I think Nazareth, yeah. And um, teaching in the synagogue, what's their reaction? Well, you know, this guy, and he can't amount to anything. It's really perplexing to them. 
you know, he's teaching with wisdom, he's doing these miracles, and yet, who was he? Son yeah. of carpenter. Not just son of the carpenter. He was carpenter. Yeah. This passage says, is this not the carpenter? Not this carpenter. And they know him as a carpenter. They know his family. And this is really um, bothersome to them to see Jesus, a hometown boy, making it big. Like, who does he think he is? They were sort of upset by Jesus' accomplishments. What do you think about that? I think it's stupid. Yeah. It's a shame. It is a shame. You know, the people who knew best, the ones in the synagogue, who could have just experienced firsthand what generations had been waiting for, looked overlooked it. Yeah, I just, I feel really bad for him. Better? I think it shows human nature. They're proud. You know, he's this guy, and he's like, he's better than us. We always resent a peer who surpasses us. That's tough. Somebody that we see the same age, the same area, the same, you know kind of family or whatever, and they are doing something we aren't doing. That that you there's certain people you just expect, well they're going to be better. They're going to do more. But this hometown friend, how is he doing these things? And Jesus expresses that in verse four. You know, you wouldn't expect a prophet to have honor uh, in his own hometown among his own people. And I think you can see that even in our day sometimes. You know, you might take a, a, a boy who grew up in a congregation, and he may be, become a, a, a fine preacher, but, but in some cases wouldn't be as respected back home where they'd grown up with him. and They sort of thought of him as being one of theirs. So, what were the results of this in verse 5? Not a lot. Yeah. In the sense of not a lot of healing. Yeah. He could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. That's kind of interesting in and of itself. For most people, curing a few sick folk by laying their hands on them wouldn't would hardly be called no miracle. I mean, only in Jesus' case would you say, you know, uh, he couldn't hardly do anything there. He only healed a few sick people. <laughs> I guarantee you, if you could heal a few sick people, you wouldn't consider that. Well, that wasn't much of a much. <laughs> so that just shows you how, how Jesus was doing. But why couldn't he? Why would the reaction of these people from Nazareth have kept Jesus from healing more people there? says they wondered at their, he wondered at their unbelief. So they didn't have faith. You're right. One one way it could be taken is he could only lay his hands on a few sick people is because that's all that were brought to him. I think that's the point. Do you usually see Jesus going into a city and making some sort of a blanket declaration all sick people in this city be healed. That's not the way he did it. He healed those who sought it. Those who came. Those who were brought. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're not coming and they're not bringing and he's not healing. I don't think it's that Jesus said to somebody who came to him, I don't think you believe enough. I'll, I'll, I'll not do this one. I think it's more they did. They showed they didn't believe because they didn't come. And it is mar- uh, kind of a marvel their unbelief. Jesus marveled at the faith of G- Gentiles and the unbelief of Jews. Oh, I had other comments or questions on this. That seems to be just another example of how what you believe and what you do are tied together. I mean, 
you don't have belief, so you're not going to bring, you know, sick Aunt Margie to, to Jesus. Or you do believe, so you are going to act and cart somebody over there or, or whatever. Absolutely, yes, I agree. Belief and, and action are two sides of the same coin. Other comments and questions? Um, back in verse 2. Part of their astonishment might have been because before Jesus began preaching, he would have been, I am assuming, a fairly quiet, humble, unassuming carpenter. Emphasis on humble and unassuming. So he wouldn't have necessarily put himself forward. It's not like he was going to be the star people in the class and they were expecting this, with, I would guess. So that's just another. Exactly. Uh, you know, Jesus. the whole idea of Jesus' humanity is interesting in that he kind of came into the world incognito. You know, you'd have looked at Jesus... And would there have been a glow about him physically that would just shown you right then and there he must have been the Son of God? I don't think so. I, I don't think you would have spent a few minutes in his presence and said, Oh, wow. He just talks. Now, not just an ordinary conversation. I mean, apparently he grew up and people thought him as, of him as, you know, ordinary. Um, Jesus veiled his glory. In, 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 in human flesh. And so, yeah, that they weren't prepared for this. Well, there wouldn't have been near as much of an appeal for Jesus being uh, on earth if he had been some miraculous individual like that. I mean, the fact that he grew up as normal really, I think, emphasizes and makes so much uh, more important the fact that he came down to earth because he became down to earth and was like this rich guy's son and got treated luxuriously and never went through any trials. There, it wouldn't mean a whole lot to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. His humanity is encouraging. In verse 3, they talk about his mother, Mary. Yes. Um, and then his sisters. Who are his sisters? Is we that Jesus' sisters? Yes. And then, why don't they mention his father? Good question. We do not have an answer given in the Bible. But we do have this fact, and that's consistent in all the accounts. During Jesus' ministry, his mother is mentioned on several occasions, his brothers, occasionally his sisters, never his father. And on the cross, Jesus entrusted the care of his mother... To John, I, I don't think we can prove this, the Bible doesn't say, but my guess is his father was dead. I think there's the most logical explanation for that. Uh, you wouldn't so much think of him entrusting the care of his mother, who was married still to Joseph, who was taking care of her to someone, as you would him doing that with his widowed mother. And the fact that Joseph does not appear in these accounts with his mother, brothers, and sisters. That, that, I think that's the most logical conclusion, but we can't prove it. Good question. Other comments and questions? Okay, look at the next section, 7 to 13. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Where, when it, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. 
So he calls the twelve, and he's got a special mission for them here. This is a this kind of a, a a further step in his development of these apostles. He has called them back in chapter three to be with him and then to be sent out. Well, here he's sending them out. By the way, this idea of sending out is really apostling them. That's the apostle is to be sent out. Jesus himself was sent from God. Now he's sending them. And he's got a lot of instructions for them. Um, what basically are they to be doing? What do they do? Preaching repentance. Right, they preach and they cast out demons, cast out demons and heal sick people. What does that remind you of, those activities? It's just like what Jesus did. Yeah, they're more or less an extension of what he's doing. He's training them to take over his mission. They've been sort of apprentices. And so, he's sending them out. Now, I'm not a definitive sending out, kind of a trial run. (laughs) And uh, what are some of the specific instructions that he gives them? And what are they supposed to wear? Sandals. Yeah. Long tunic. Yeah. No bread, no bag, no money. So what's the idea of this? They're going to trust God to give them their provisions. Yes. And maybe the idea of it being an urgent mission. You know, I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time gathering stuff together. Just go out as you are. And when you enter a house, stay there and let them take care of you. If the house doesn't receive you, then shake the dust off your feet as a, as a symbolic act of, of their rejection of the gospel. So he's basically sending them on an urgent mission. Just go as you are. Let the people where you go take care of you. And they go out in verse 12 and they preach that men should repent. Does that remind you of anything, preaching repentance? John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached that, and Jesus preached that. Now the disciples are preaching that. That's the the key no, keynote, perhaps, in the preaching of the book of Mark. Is preaching repentance, preaching that you need to change to turn to the Lord. And they're casting out demons and uh, healing sick people. Um, so this is this is a training mission, so to speak, uh, for for the twelve. It's also, can you see an advantage that doing this is going to have for Jesus' mission overall? The people around that he sends them to are going to be more prepared when if he comes through there or to here later. He gets a wider message out. Yes. You know, greater coverage for the work, for the message. You know, he's sending now six teams. They can they can cover more territory and announce the message to more people. So I think, yes, this is going to result in a more rapid expansion of the message Jesus is sending out. Comments and questions? This is, <clears throat> this is kind of a dumb question, but... Um, he says um, that he commanded them to take nothing except for the journey, except um, a staff and uh, to wear sandals, and that's pretty much it. But down in it says down in the ver- end of verse eight, it says um, no copper in their money belts. Does that mean they wouldn't bring their money belts either? Or at least they wouldn't have money in them. Because right, he doesn't want to say to bring the money belts. Yeah. He kind of says no money in the money. At any rate, they're not supposed to be carrying money. They're supposed to just depend on the people that they live with. Other questions or comments? This next section is really intriguing and fairly long. I think it follows from 
the spread of this message. More and more people are hearing, more and more people are turning to the Lord, and as the, as the news travels, that impacts certain individuals in certain situations. So, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent, and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. And a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in in haste before the king and said, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison, and brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of this, they came and took away his body, and laid him to Pretty tragic events, but it starts with King Herod uh, finding out about Jesus, perhaps because of the spread of the, of the mission by more teams going out, even King Herod hears about this. Now what do you know about Herod? He's on a good guy. Yeah. He's in an adulterous relationship with John has been condemning and starting to get on his nerves. Yeah. Who is Herod? There's a lot of different ones. There's a lot of different ones. Did you know that? Herod is not a personal name. It's like a family name. There's, uh, you know, a lot of witsits. Uh, when I say Whitsit, I'm not necessarily just talking about one character. Um, so when you talk about Herod, you have to identify which Herod you're talking about. Herod was kind of a ruling family in that area. The granddaddy of them all, Herod the Great, had gotten in good with the Romans, and that really helped them in gaining favor with the Roman government to become like governors of various provinces. But that Herod, Herod the Great... What was his claim to fame biblically? Trying to kill Jesus. Yeah, killed the babies around Bethlehem trying to get Jesus. He died shortly thereafter. He was not a good guy. Um, one of the Roman authors said it was safer to be Herod's sow than Herod's son because he killed so many of his own kids and wives in jealous suspicion, you know, and so forth. But he had some children that he didn't kill. Including this guy. This guy is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is known to us by this story where he killed John the Baptist. Where else do we read of Herod Antipas in the Bible? What else did he do? He died. He did die, most do. Is he the one No, he's not the one who got eaten by worms and died. Was that a Herod? That was a Herod. Would that have been this guy's son? No, it wasn't. This guy's nephew. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to construct a family tree here. This Herod was the Herod that Pilate sent Jesus to Herod at the trial, and Herod sent him back to Pilate. That's this Herod. This is Herod Antipas, so he's connected with John the Baptist and Jesus' trial, basically in the New Testament account. Um, then the Herod you're mentioning from Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa I, was a grandson of Herod the Great, but not through Antipas. Don't ask me through who, I don't remember. But Herod Agrippa I, his claim to fame was not only getting eaten by worms and dying, 
What else have he done? Who did Paul appeared before him? Uh, okay. who, who did he kill? James. James of uh, James and John. Who did he imprison? Peter, and he's going to have beheaded him until an angel sprung Peter loose from the prison. And uh, so that's Herod Agrippa I. Um, now, Herod Agrippa I has three children that we know of in the biblical narrative that you may remember. There's some other Herods that I'm even mentioning. They're in the Bible, but they don't you know, come in for much play. But Herod Agrippa I's children included Drusilla. Remember Drusilla? Mrs. Felix. Yes. That was one of Herod Agrippa I's children. What do you read about Herod Agrippa the Acts 12. And another two children of his were the guy we call in the Bible Agrippa. Now, he's really Herod Agrippa II, but we call him Agrippa. And Bernice. Why do you say, huh? I thought they were a couple. As so did everyone else. I think they and sort of were. Yeah. The, 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 uh, the gossip was that they were sort of both. Yeah, that was really... Uh, not real good, but that family was not real good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were highly dysfunctional. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Drusilla, Bernice, and Agrippa, who's really Herod Agrippa the second. So, with the all Herod's children. They're all Herod Agrippa the first children. The Acts 12 Herod's children. They're all really great grandkids of Herod the Great. Now, this is kind of a complicated question, but. Uh, now, Herod Agrippa was Herod the Great's grandson, right? That's right. Would this have been uh, Philip's? Would that have been Philip's son? I don't remember who Herod Agrippa the first father is. So I can't answer Be, because, the question. Because Herod Agrippa the first was or not Herod Agrippa the whatever this dude's name is. Antipas. He, yeah, Antipas. He was married to Philip, his brother Philip's wife. Yes, wine, but there so. were other brothers too, and I just don't remember which um, one. Well, anyway, that would have been really this weird. Bible. You may have Bible it. Called, I've got that one. It, on Matthew show? 1, it has Herod's family tree. Say, Does oh, it show you who's Herod okay. Agrippa the first's father? Uh, Aristobulus. Okay. It was Aristobulus. He was, <laughs> that tells me a lot. <laughs> who was a sibling of like Herod Antipas and Archelaus and Philip. It does. Page 1561. Yeah. So it, there you have it. It's in another place too, but anyway, you can. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. What Bible do you have? What's it called? What's else? The Near and Darkness Bible. That. It's cool. Yeah, cool. So Herodias. That's the one your sister used to have. Herod Agrippa the first. Is that what this is showing? So it was the sister that asked for the head of John. Is that what this is saying? It's Philip's wife. Sister. Mm-hmm. I can't read a family tree. Daughter. This is too complicated. Oh, let's see. What page did you say? She was married. 1561. Matthew 1. I think that's a different one. You see why I'm confused? I think that's a different Herodias, but I'm not positive. No, it says wife of Herodias. So, it must have been his niece or something. That's scary. Yeah, very scary. I don't know. I mean, I, there's so much to Herod's family tree that I don't understand. But that may be the case. I know. I knew they were related. I didn't remember how. I, it was a mess. And you, there, we really know a ton about that historically. In that period of time, we know a lot about. And you know, we got Josephus and other writers and so forth. So we can, we know. You can read. I mean, different things that will tell you lots and lots and lots of stuff you probably didn't want to know about the Herod family. <laughs> yeah. you know, lots you would want to know. So they, the Herods, were like a political. They were a governing family. So like Caesar. Herod, I, I, you know, I forget the whole story, but Herod the Great got in on the right side of the fight between Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, I think. Didn't they, didn't they have a conflict? 
And I think he ended up on the right side of that, and he got favors as a result of that from Julius, and uh, the family continued to be favored by the Roman rulers. They were part Jewish, part Idumean. They go back even before Herod the Great, but I can't remember. I, you know, I never learned all that real well. There are, you can find a lot of information. If you can get a good book on like the, the period between the Testaments, there's a lot in Jewish history leading into the Herod family. And I think the, the Waldron books. Probably so. The Waldron books probably have some information on that. Section, yeah. They've got yeah, some information about that, yeah. I mean, all of that is well-known historically. There's not a lot of debate about that because we have a lot of historical information. I just only know the parts I know. <laughs> That's Acts 12, verse 20 to 23. Okay. So Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip were some of Herod's, the great sons. Yes, and Aristobulus, and so forth. Some other folks that he killed. Yeah, yeah. He had several wives, several children. Some of them maintained their life and some of them didn't. So that's the uh, edifying Herod family. I just thought, you know, somewhere along the line we need to talk about that a little bit anyway. There's obviously more to tell. But, but the cool thing about this is Herod hears about Jesus. What does he think? Why would he think that? I think so. I think he's sort of, um, you know, troubled, and that the first uh, thing he hears about Jesus is like, oh no, John's come back to haunt me. You know, it's kind of like, who was it? And Macbeth, somebody or other that couldn't get the blood off their hands and kept washing their hands? Mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth. Lady Macbeth, okay. I don't know much about all that stuff. Shakespeare's not my favorite poet. But uh, but it's kind of this idea of, you know, when you've done something wrong, doesn't it keep eating at you? Don't you kind of, doesn't everything kind of spook you when you when you know you're guilty? And so he's just sure John's come back from the dead. Now, other people were saying other things, like, well, he's probably Elijah, he's probably a prophet, but Herod hears in verse 16, I know it's John. It's got to be John. You know, so you can just imagine, you know, how Herod was feeling as he hears the report spreading about Jesus. Uh, eventually, he'll find out more about Jesus and won't think that by the time of the trial. You know, he certainly doesn't think Jesus is John, but right here, as he's first hearing the reports, that's what he thinks. Now, what we do in the narrative is cool. We go to a flashback. You know, Herod, or John, whom I beheaded, has risen four. And now we flashback to pick up the story of Herod beheading John. And the story of Herod beheading John is a, is a very interesting story. It all starts with Herod doing what? Arresting John. Arresting and putting John in prison because of... Yeah, he married his brother's wife and had no business with her. John had been telling him it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Probably not something designed to prolong your life when you say that to the governor, who always liked being called king. (laughs) He really wasn't, but the Romans allowed him to indulge himself in that title if he enjoyed that. So, he was King Herod. Uh, all the Herods kind of like to be called King. And, uh, but but you don't do that with, with a Herod uh, saying, you know, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. She really shows what about John? Courage. Courage, absolutely. That, that takes some guts. And uh, so, Herod puts him in prison, but it's kind of interesting the way Herod feels about him. How did he feel about him? was afraid, and he sort of liked him and protected him, sort of. Yeah, isn't that weird? Kind of ambivalent reactions to John on the part of Herod. He almost loved to be upset by John. I think some people do. They like getting their toes stepped on. Makes them feel bad, and that's sort of doing penance or something. So, and I think he knew John was right. So, he kept in prison, but he still liked to hear him, didn't do anything else to him. How did Herodias feel about him? 
She wanted him dead. Yeah. She hates his guts. Um, so, there's this particular time, Herod's birthday, having a big bash at the uh, ballroom of the palace, I suppose, and you know how those big banquets of, you know, higher-ups probably are, uh, probably some uh, extra beverages flowing and whatever, and there's some live entertainment, and who provides that? His yeah, his stepdaughter actually, Herodias' daughter. Like his niece, but his stepdaughter. Yeah, and <laughs> do I know? <laughs> his niece and his stepdaughter. Yeah, I think you're right. Something. Like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, but 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 this is not real good. I mean, probably not good that you'd have live entertainment anyway. Because this is probably not some innocent little production. But would you want your stepdaughter showing herself off in front of all these drunken men? Well, it's even it wasn't even appropriate. Because if you remember back in Esther, the reason that uh, Vashti was kicked out is because she wouldn't come in front of the men because they weren't supposed to do that. So as far as I understand it, I don't know if it's how it is here, but I know back in the Old Testament, the custom was with the parties that the men would have their partying and then the women would party in another room. Yeah, I don't know about all that, but I think uh, the kind of things that are done in this situation are clearly sensual, they're not, they're not pure, they're not right, and, and I don't, I mean, why in the world? You see, you see parents sometimes, you know, with no sense, wanting their daughters to, you know, attract the guys with whatever. Why would you ever, as a parent, want your daughter to be an object of the guy's, you know, improper attention? I mean, that that's kind of weird in and of itself. But what's even weirder is Herod's response to this. This is really sick. If you, I mean, I take it that she's, it says she pleased Herod. I'm assuming that is not an innocent pleasing. Herod gets... Uh, particularly intrigued by his stepdaughter's uh, entertainment, and to the point where he does what? Sends whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Up to half our kingdom. Which, that's stupid. I mean, <laughs> good grief. Don't sign a blank check. <laughs> Don't let your emotions get carried away with you. What in the world was he thinking? He wasn't thinking. When you get in those states, you're not thinking. He's just all excited and he blurts this out, I suppose. And it would have been really interesting if she had asked for half his kingdom, since he really had no kingdom whatsoever to give. It's a good thing she didn't choose that. Um, she goes and asks her mother, what shall I ask for? That one beats all. It, you are. You're Herodias. You've got the chance for uh, to ask Herod for anything you want. What would you ask? She has a one-track mind. What would you ask? I really want that new chariot and a week at that great spa, you know, just outside of Rome. And I want 17 emeralds, not 16, 17. Yeah, that sort of stuff. I mean, wow. This would have been a great opportunity for Herodias. Think of all the stuff she could have gotten. You know, whatever her dreams might have been. Who knows what, you know, was going around fashionably at that time or what, you know, travel she wanted or whatever. But she's got this opportunity and the one thing she wants? John's head. She is obsessed with her hatred of John. That's all she can think about. That's just amazing. And, ah, shoot. This, this girl is a worthy daughter of her mother because she comes in haste. And did you ever notice what she says in verse 25? She kind of one-ups her mom. What does she want? His head on a platter right now. On a platter. What's the context of on a platter? They are doing what? 
Eating It's like, do you want an order of fries with that? <laughs> She's saying, you know, I want John's head on my platter. She's that's she's just adding to the sick, gross humor of the situation. You know, that's whoa, man. This is a perverted family if there ever was one. And uh, well, what kind of position does that put Herod in? He's got to do it now. Why? Because he's promised. It was, it was, he probably promised by a signet ring too. I mean, it doesn't say that, but a lot of times they would like promise by certain things. But that wouldn't be the big thing. The big thing was he promised it how. In front of everybody. Yes, and if he doesn't do it, how's he going to look? Liar Yeah, he's going to look like he's too wimpy, too chicken, you know. He's not a man of Yeah, well, yeah, he's, he's, you know, what would we say about him? I don't know. He's, a, he's, a, in my generation, they said, you're, you're, you're a woman or something like that. You know, he's not got, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you're not a real man that's got enough, you know, intestinal fortitude to do that. Do what? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so he's got to do it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to, he doesn't like it, but he does. And he brings the girl, the head of John on the platter. And here's the man Jesus called the greatest born of woman. Who's sacrificed to satisfy a cocktail wager? You know, more or less. It's just so sick and so gross. And really, well, there's a lot to learn from this. Now, I'll pause before I come up with the lessons and give you a chance to ask questions and make comments. At what age was this young girl and what age was her mother? I don't know. But, I mean, I assume she's developed at least. And, yeah, I don't know. Why would she go to her mom and do, I mean, and then accept that? I'd be saying, I want stuff for me. Makes me wonder if this hasn't been a little bit orchestrated on the part of uh, Herodias. Is it possible that she kind of designed this this way? I wonder if there was any suggestion made of Herod offering something. I don't know. But it is kind of curious. Unless she's just a mama's girl and she goes to mama for everything. I wonder if Herodias hadn't kind of schemed this. I have a hard time seeing Herodias as a mom you'd want to be a mama's girl, right? (laughs) I mean... Okay, she sounds like she she'd be a pretty mean mom to have. I mean, she sounds she, like she's controlling and you know manipulative and yeah, I sounds evil. Well, verse twenty-two doesn't say he called for the daughter to come in and dance. She yes. Just went in. Yes. So. So Herodias could have just said, "Why don't you do this?" And if he does this, then yes, come back and all. Makes me wonder. Says you know kind of thing. Yeah. I think it was probably a custom to whenever someone pleased you with a dance or, or whatever to reward them uh, I mean looking back at um, back in Daniel you know Daniel pleased the king or whoever it was at the time by you know interpreting the writing on the wall and he said here I'll give you all these things and he said no keep your stuff this is what you need to know but even with with dancing girls or whatever you know you you like this one, so you keep her, or you give her a expensive necklace, or whatever. Yeah. That yeah. kind of thing. So she may have done this before, and just, I guess you could say, done a better job at it. And he said, "Anything you want." To, you know. Yeah, that that may well be the case. Is that when the by a strategic day came? Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe so. Strategic for yeah, <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I can't imagine what the family of John must have felt, because I mean, how you died was so important back then, and how your burial and everything went was so important to their culture. I can just imagine, and it, an evil, you know, being an evil woman's head on, you know, having your head on fire by an evil woman just. They probably, I mean, that's not the way I want to die. His parents were probably dead, dead by because they were so old when they had him. And Jesus was his cousin, probably one of the 
closer relatives. And we see in 29, his disciples heard and took the body and laid it in the tomb. So he probably had those close to him who were his disciples. But so he, he didn't really have any close maybe family. Not. Maybe not. They were barren, so he yeah. wouldn't have any brothers and sisters. But, I mean, the, those who were nearest him, including Jesus, would have been upset about that. Yes. Does it actually say that Mary and Elizabeth were sisters? No, I don't think they were. They were relatives. Yeah, because that's what it says. They were relatives. I just, well, because I've read in some commentaries where it says they were first cousins. I didn't think that was necessarily. I don't know true. about that. But. Now think about this. When I was a teenager, I heard a sermon entitled "Sins That Beheaded John the Baptist," and I preached that sermon a few times. The premise is this: Think about how great John was, and then he was cruelly and and unjustly beheaded. Any sins that would have contributed to the beheading of a great man like John must be especially heinous sins. And so that's your way of kind of analyzing this and thinking about some practical conclusions. If you look at this story carefully, you can identify several key sins that contributed to John's demise. Like what? Sensuality. Yes, the sensual dance. And certainly sensuality leads to all sorts of horrible things. What else? Adultery. Yes, the, the wrong marriage of Herod and Herodias was sort of the background sin that led to all of this. That's good, and that's obviously a problem in our day. What else? Probably drunkenness. Perhaps. I don't have that as one of my key five, but yeah, you're probably right. Wrath or fits of anger or rage. I don't know how to... Herodias' hatred is what I'd say. Yeah. I mean, her hatred that drove her to do this. What else? Rash speaking? Or yes, rash? I think so. The very idea of offering a blank check like this, this rash vow on his part, uh, to me, is a key sin in this whole process. And then there's one more that I identify in my lesson. What should Herod have done once his stepdaughter asked for John's head? He should have broken his vow. Two wrongs don't make a right. What was the sin that contributed to him not doing that? Pride. Yeah, pride or I say lack of courage. You know, lack of courage to, to lose face in front of his dinner guests. You can divide those up differently. You can analyze them differently. But that's a way of thinking about this and just thinking about the horrible consequences of sins like these and leading up to John's death. It's probably even more hard for him because he was king on to something big. Yes. Wouldn't want to look bad in front of him. That's right. And these were big shots in his kingdom that were his guests. All right. Questions and comments and thoughts on all this? Girls and the parents as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, good point. We are just in this culture, whatever. You know, we, I don't know, I was talking to somebody, I guess at the camp, I think somewhere oh. recently anyway, just about how if, if girls only understood what men were really thinking when they attracted their attention with you know, short skirts and, and you know, uh, improper, you know, movements and whatever. I mean, when girls are doing the things that get the guys to turn their heads and look at them, sometimes girls, especially younger girls, kind of like, they enjoy the attention. They don't realize how perverse and corrupt the guys are in terms of what they're really thinking. And... You know, and then you think sometimes, every once in a while, parents are accomplices in that. And you wonder, why would any parent want to show off their girls in some way as to get, you know, lewd guys to, you know, thinking crude things about them? I mean, they're, from both the girl's standpoint and the parents, you know, I just, it floors me. I mean, what parent would ever allow their child 
they had any any ability to control the situation to do some strip tease act for a bunch of drunken men. And we may not do that, but some of what's done amounts to the same thing. You don't want to be looked at that way. And you wouldn't want your daughter to attract that kind of attention. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you know, we want to be popular. And we haven't stopped to think about, you know, what kind of compromises and, and what kind of, of lowering of my self-respect do I have to go to to get some kind of attention? I don't know. But it's okay... I mean, we wouldn't do it in that setting, but it's okay if they're if they're on the team, you know, the volleyball team, or and that's the required dress. Or the cheerleaders. Or the cheerleaders, isn't that the way we, you know? Or if you're going to the beach, obviously you have to wear that. Or if it's the fashion. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot built into our culture that is sensual. I mean, you know, guys like to see girls that are not properly dressed, and so the clothing designers and the culturally acceptable thing, I mean, you know, um, in most cases, cheerleaders, I mean, they're part of the guy's entertainment. You know, there's a little bit more to this than just being able to see the team. You can also see this sideshow. And, I mean, there's a, there's a, I mean, from, from, from most worldly guys' standpoint, this is a, a little added attraction. You know, I'm not saying everybody that does that, every girl that does that is malicious in what she's thinking. I'm saying she's probably not thinking what the guys are really thinking. And, I recently read something about a guy that videoed or took pictures of cheerleaders and was and compiled a, a video or something of that and was selling it as a sensual. Sure. Yeah. And the parents were in an uproar of that because what he had done had taken close-ups, but it was all during yeah. public games yeah. and everything else. So yeah. They were all upset about that, yet they were out there displaying it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and and you know it's hard for for that. I, I yeah. I mean, we just uh, we need to be very very careful about those things. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we're naive or if we just want to fit in or what. But I think that we need to think about, for example, being a stumbling block. Have the terrible things Jesus says about that, and. We need to be be discreet and thoughtful about those things, and I don't know. I mean, I just think I, I just think wow that Herod and Herodias allowed her to do this, and then Herod's you know unbelievably you know wrong passion for his stepdaughter. But I mean, it's just a it's just a horribly corrupt atmosphere. We wouldn't want to think of ourselves as fitting into that atmosphere, and yet sometimes we do the same kinds of things. In our culture, a lot of times fashion dictates morality. It's like it's like well, immorality is the case, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, it's like it's like if you it's like for example with the bathing suits. If you wear that out in public, well, that's in mass, that's wrong. But if it's at the beach, then it's okay. It's not a lot of times to most people, it's not what you wear, it's where you wear it. Sure. In culture. Well, I, I, I thought it was very interesting. Obviously, this is a little dated. But uh, when I was in college, I read some books on, like, marriage. And one of them that I read, a couple of them that I read, were Letters to Karen and Letters to Philip. I don't know if any of you knew those books. Charlie Shedd wrote them. And they were practical advice from a dad to his, his daughter, a dad to his son, before they got married. Not especially biblical, but pretty practical kinds of things. There was one chapter in Letters to Philip. It was so interesting. The guy wasn't trying to make a moral point out of this at all. He said, now look, you know, women and men think differently. They are um, intrigued by different things. And so you'll spend the day at the beach with your wife <laughs> and kids or whatever. And you'll come home and there'll be one thing on your mind after seeing, you know, all the 
girls there at the beach, and she'll be thinking, you know, wasn't that Minnie's hat lovely, or wasn't the girl sunburned, or whatever. You know, that, that don't expect her to necessarily be on the same page you are. Now, he was just taking it for granted that a guy spending the day on the beach, he's going to have one thing on his mind when he gets home. He wasn't even thinking about the fact that looking at all those women is actually not what the guy's supposed to be doing. I mean, that's normal in our culture, even in a semi-moral writer like him. He wasn't trying to make a point, don't go to the beach, don't look at the girls like that. He's just taking it for granted. When you do that, you're going to be, you know, thinking those kind of thoughts. And, you know, I mean, look at the commercials. You know, it's not just that, you know, scantily clad girls are, you know, cheaper to advertise things with or whatever. It's that they draw attention. Guys are going to look. I mean, we know that. Except Christians seem to be, you know, ignorant of that sometimes. Obviously, many Christians are very careful about those things, but some aren't, and we need to be. So I worked at Walmart in the fabric department, and when there were these short skirts and the low, these women would come in and they said, I want a piece of lace this long. And I couldn't figure out why, and so I asked. said, it's showing too much. And so they wanted to buy different colors of lace so they could put it in there. Mm-hmm. And then they'd come back and they want longer pieces. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, the belly's still showing. And we want the girls to look nice when they go to school. So please, you know, if you got a three-inch lace, please sell it to mm-hmm. us. And then it wasn't long, then they came back and wanted to put it down here. And I look at these girls now. And if you look at it, there is additional lace sold on because the fashion world couldn't sell the stuff. <laughs> well, it's, and it's how they were dressed. Yeah. Well, it's, it's ridiculous some of the things that pass for fashion and shouldn't. Yeah. So. All right. Well, our time is up for now. So why don't we uh, stop here? And I should be here next Tuesday, believe it or not, two Tuesdays in a row. That's uh, a near record for the summer. I don't think I'll be able to do more than that anytime this summer. So. Uh.